The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening and welcome. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see you all. So when I first started a meditation practice a number of years ago now, I I so often had this idea like, wow, everybody else must be like on the brink of enlightenment or they're enlightened and I am so awful as a meditator. I remember that I actually learned how to meditate on a meditation retreat and it was incomprehensible. I just could not understand how come that person sitting in front of me was still for 45 minutes. I just didn't even like know how that was possible. I was like in so much pain and nonstop squirming and it was quite something. And I had this, uh, I was saying to myself, why did I ever think this was a good idea? (laughs) But as I learned more and more about meditation, you know, it really touched me, kind of like in my heart, in some kind of way that I couldn't even describe or explain. Something was pulling me. But I still couldn't do it very well, and I couldn't sit still, and my mind was all over the place. But it wasn't uh, until I had been meditating for quite some time, I don't remember precisely how long, but for quite some time before I ever heard of these things called the hindrances. And that was a game changer for me when I learned about this. Some of you may be familiar with this. It's a common teaching, but for whatever reason, maybe I was just absent on those days when they were being talked about. I had never heard about them. But it made such a big difference. So what are the hindrances? These are something that the you know, are um, preserved in the teachings from early Buddhism. So it's attributed to the Buddha. So thousands of years ago, people were talking about this same thing, which for me, I love this idea, like, wow, thousands of years ago, they were talking about what I'm experiencing today. And that somehow, you know, makes it less personal, right? That countless numbers of people have had these same problems that I'm having, these same issues that I'm having. So it kind of like normalized my meditation experience and the difficulties. The Pali word is nivarana, which often gets translated as hindrances, but we might also think of these as obstructions or impediments or obstacles to the mind and bodily mind and body settling down. So things that are getting in the way from settling down. And they, typically, they have this list of five. These, like all the things that ever happened to us while we're trying to meditate, they kind of like, you know, boiled it down to five. There are other lists that um, kind of are more fleshed out than this list of five. But um, I'm going to stick with this five. And I'm not going to talk about the hindrances themselves, but I'll just briefly mention them. I'm going to talk more about 
our relationship to them and kind of like flesh out what they are as a group and how we might work with them in different settings and our relationship to them and what does it mean for us as meditators. So what are these five uh, hindrances? So the first two are about this uh, sense of kind of like, often we use this expression or I use this expression of pushing or pulling. So this pushing, I don't want it, get it away from me. (laughs) Pulling, I want more of this, please don't leave. So pushing and pulling. I guess pushing would be aversion and pulling is sense desire. Typically they go in the other directions, would be pulling and pushing, I guess, sense desire and aversion. The next two have to do with the amount of energy that's um, present. I think we all have this experiment, this experience that there's just too much energy and we just feel agitated and we can't fidget. So it's either with the body or with the mind that the mind is racing and trying to solve problems or kind of like obsessively in a loop or something like this or just feeling like we have to scratch or itch or shift or something. So too much energy, restlessness, or not enough energy. It's this odd uh, expression, sloth and torpor, which these were never part of my vocabulary before I started practicing Buddhism. But that's the, you know, when there isn't enough energy, kind of like falling asleep or, yeah, well, just falling asleep is a, or feeling like you're, you know, going in that direction. And then the fifth one is actually one that I think is the most interesting. I'm not going to talk a lot about it today. I was thinking that maybe I'll do some Dharma talks on it. That It gets called doubt, but it's really about vacillation or hesitation. Okay, well, maybe I'm going to sit and um, I'll do some loving kindness practice. I thought that was good. May you be happy. But wait, maybe I should do some mindfulness practice because this thing on my knee is bothering me. I'm looking at the knee. Well, maybe I should do some concentration practice because I heard that's really good. No, maybe I should do meta practice because that helps with the concentration practice. I think I'm just going to go and defrost the freezer. You know, <laughs> It's this thing kind of like you're just bouncing around and not really settling. But it often has to do with this, what what should I be doing? Like what's the what's the right practice or... Does this really work, this practice? Do those teachers really know what they're talking about? How do we even know what the Buddha said? You know, these types of things. So this is doubt, kind of this vacillation or this hesitation. So these hindrances, uh, part of what um, makes them so interesting, I would say, and powerful to work with, is we notice them in our meditation practice when we're trying to settle down when we've decided that we're going to meditate. But they are there, whether we are aware of them or not. They are there in all aspects of our lives. Work, any creative projects we'd like to do, any service projects we'd like to do, volunteering and long-term relationships. These hindrances, quote-unquote, 
don't just hinder the mind settling into down. They just get in the way of our doing what's important to us. They get in the way of our expressing our values in so many different ways. So there is one way that we might consider meditation practice. Sometimes I like to lump things together. So if you were to do like a big, huge lumping together, we could say all of meditation practice is of one of two kinds. One is a really deep meditative state, very deep. The other is you're working with the hindrances. That's it. Like these, are, You could say these are like the two types of things because the hindrances are always there unless we're in really deep meditative uh, states. So in some way, they are like seeds that, uh, you know, blossom or bloom or grow. And maybe what they are, when they are growing, they have like these hooks that like to hang on to things or they're looking for things to hang on to. And then they... Uh, then they kind of like fuel whatever it is they get connected to. For example, a story that um, I have is I was on this really long retreat. I had been in for months and the mind is really settled. And I noticed in this one set in particular, there was like some of this uh, desire. There's like these fantasies. You know, now I don't remember what it was, but fantasies of something good, right, that I wanted Maybe like a more comfortable uh, cushion or, you know, whatever it might be. But then I noticed uh, this, you know, like, oh, okay, this is just a hindrance, the hindrance of desire. There's a number of ways we can work with this. And I was working with it and the desire was kind of going away. It was abating and the mind was finally settling down. And by the end of the meditation period, I felt like, oh, it finally settled down. Phew, okay, feels good. The bell goes off at the end of the session, and uh, I thought, you know what? I finally got settled. I'm just going to stay. I don't have to jump up right when the bell rings. So I'm sitting, and I'm sitting for you know some minutes more. And then I decide, okay, it's time to get up, and it's uh, lunch time. So I'll go have lunch. And those of you who've been on meditation retreats know that really it's just like a buffet line and you get your plate and you serve yourself in the line. So I go to the dining hall, wash my hands before, get my plate and go up to whatever the first thing is. Oh my gosh, this looks so good. Okay, I get to put some of this on. Wow, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I'm going to put this, oh, maybe I should get two. Wow, look at this, they also have this. I got to get this. I had so much food on my plate. There's like no way I was going to be able to eat this. What I hadn't seen is that the desire had just gotten a little bit more subtle. And I found this hook that when I went to lunch, it just got expressed as just piling all the food I could onto this one plate. So there's this way that they get expressed, and sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's really subtle. And that's a little bit what I want to talk about today, is about how there's the hindrances. It's not like they're present or absent. It's really definitely a spectrum 
And that they can be really obvious or really subtle. And we can work with them in all these different ways with the subtle and with the obvious and with the subtle. But however we work with them, there's a way that we might consider, and I'm influenced by Rob Berbea, another Dharma teacher, wonderful Dharma teacher. And he describes hindrances as hidden treasures. Hidden treasures. And part of the reason why he says this is be this recognition that they are showing up in our life all over a place, wherever. And that even if we go on a meditation retreat and we're spending days, weeks, months on retreat, or if we just come to a 45-minute sit or we do a day long, whatever it is, if nothing happens during that meditation endeavor except working with desire, working with ill will, working with restlessness, working with drowsiness, like we feel like, or we have doubts, like should I even be doing this? I'm so awful at this. If, we, if the mind and the body never settle, but we learn something about these hindrances, we learn our habits, the patterns of our minds, patterns of our bodies, when we have a, something we'd like to do and there's difficulties, obstructions, obstacles that get in the way, if the only thing we ever do is notice, oh yeah, when there is desire, I notice how my body leans forward and I'm just, I can't stop all these fantasies and they're colorful and provocative and there's the mind is just, doesn't ever want to come back, it's just lost in fantasies and then I kind of forget what it was I was trying to do. If we have nothing but those experiences but we've learned something about ourselves, those, that might be more transformative than having some settled meditations. That might be what really changes our lives. Because having a settled meditation is pleasant and it helps us to see some of the more subtle things that are going on in our life. But in the subtle yeah, subtle minds that are going, subtle things that are going on in our minds, but learning about the hindrances and shifting our relationship to them. Instead of like, dang it, this again? Shifting it to, okay, this is what's here. How can I work with it? How can I be with it? This is what's happening. Um, I might as well learn something. I might as well... Um, practice some skills. I might as well uh, see, get curious about it. That can change your life. Helps us, like when we're having difficulties and difficult conversations. Somebody we love has a difficult diagnosis, and we notice, like, oh yeah, I I don't want to hear that. This is like the worst thing I ever wanted. No, but if we have know that how we uh, the pattern of our reaction with aversion, this helps us be present for difficult things, and this can change our life. Maybe we don't shut down or yell back when our boss or a coworker does something 
untoward or whatever it might be. So Rob Barbea calls these hindrances as hidden treasures. And and I actually really love this. So is there a way that we can learn to view them so that they lose their power, so that they lose their authority? They're still there. They're still happening. But maybe we're not as caught up in them. Maybe we're not believing them, the stories that they spin we're not so swayed by the direction that's, that they're pointing to. So they still show up, maybe as seeds, but maybe the blooming and the blossoming isn't quite as much. Maybe they're just plants <laughs> instead of seeds. So one thing that can help with this is to... Get a little bit curious when, like, either when a hindrance is uh, really evident, or maybe just more objectively to notice or get curious about the hindrances are a spectrum. I said this are really obvious or really subtle. So it's not that they're simply present or not present. So there's a way when they're present, we can sometimes feel a little bit demoralized or dejected or like, oh, again, all this desire. I'm always, I learned how when I, I noticed, sorry, when I started my meditation practice, I discovered how much desire has such a role in my life. I'm always thinking about things I'm going to buy. I'm thinking about things that I want or, you know, all these things that I want that I don't have. But if we notice that they are a spectrum, then we can start to, rather it just being they're there or not, we can notice like, oh, okay, it's, there's desire here, but maybe there's also a little bit of settledness. It's, we're not completely consumed by the desire. Or maybe there is a time when we are pretty settled, Maybe, maybe more than usual, and yet we could start to sense like, oh, there's this wish for even more settledness. So to notice that, oh yeah, even though the more obvious type isn't there, there might be the more subtle type of desire that is there. And so maybe we can work with it. And I'll talk about how to work with some of the hindrances here in a moment. But I also, I want to start by talking about this spectrum in regards to energy. Because one is one of the hindrances is restlessness. And it turns out that the Buddha, he actually talked about in some of these not as well-known suttas and in not so well-known lists. Those of you who've been around the Buddha scene know there's so many lists. There's different... uh, levels of intensity of this too much energy. So one is what typically is called the hindrance. It's maybe described as agitation or excitement or distraction or this like flurry, this sense of agitation, you know, like this busyness. Udacha in uh, Pali. And so this could be in the 
in the body. It's like this energy is pulsing through and there's like this sense to fidget. But there's also like this agitated uh, vulnerability, like as if we've had too much caffeine. So it could be in the body, but it can also show up in the mind as this scattered or persistent thinking can't quite settle down or just this inability to focus or the mind just resists being directed anywhere. It's just doing what whatever it wants to do. So that's one type of like too much energy. This what we typically call the hindrance. But then the Buddha also talked about like this excess of efforting. That is like a little bit too much exertion in the practice. There's a certain amount of settledness, but there's a straining. There is this, I definitely have to do more, or I need more, or I want more, or I'm just trying so hard. And there's a way that this can make things feel really tight. Like, I, I, I gotta get this. In Pali, this is Acharada Virya. And I love the, uh, there's this very simple simile that's offered that is of a person that holds a quail, you know, these cute little birds. We have the California quail, I just love them, they're just adorable. For those of you who know them, the way that they walk with these little things on their heads, they're just adorable, I just love them. I just saw some baby quail the other day. It was just, anyway, so if you're going to, uh, <laughs> Hold a quail, and if you hold it too tightly, you can crush it. So in the same way, if we hold our practice, the effort, too tightly, it crushes it. And then it's just this straining. So that's another type of maybe too much energy. It kind of gets translated into too much effort. But then there's this even more subtle type is this, often the Dharma teachers call this drifting. I haven't seen this anywhere in any Buddhist text. This is something that Dharma teachers have come up with. But I find it's a good um, description and can be helpful. And this is when the mind is settled. It's not agitated. It's settled. But there's a way that it just kind of like slides from one object to the next and then goes to the next. So it's not that it's sluggish, it's just kind of moving slowly. So it doesn't have this quality of agitation, but it also doesn't have the quality of just staying with the object. Instead, maybe it's like, oh, the sensation in my knee, breath, thinking about dinner, (laughs) breath, other knee. But there's a way that it's like, um, sometimes gets described as, um, well, maybe slow motion, like um, a monkey that swings from one tree to the next, but slowly. So they have one thing, but they're already reaching for the next, then let go, and then grab the next, and then let go, and then grab the next. So this drifting quality, this is really settled. The mind is settled, but there's a way in which the mind doesn't quite land. So there's this tendency for it to drift off, off the 
object or the subject that's being it's looking at. So there's just a bit more thoughts and images in the mind than there would be if the mind were more settled. And then maybe a fourth layer, maybe even more subtle, is let's say, okay, the mind has settled on this object and there's this, it's just right here with the object. I'll just say the breath, sensation of the breath, just noticing the breath, just being with the breath, noticing the breath. And then like, wow, the mind isn't thinking. And then, oh, that's actually thinking. But because we didn't notice it, it just doesn't get really seen. So there's this way in which there's this subtle way in which thoughts kind of like intrude and like, wow, it's so still. And, you know, that happens. We're over here as a thought and then coming back. That's also a little bit more energy. So then I'll just want to share a little bit because energy is something, it turns out that this is definitely the art of practice, I would say, is working with these different levels of energy too much or too little, and to recognize that there is spectrum. And so we have, uh, those were going from the most energetic to most subtle form of a little bit too much energy. And then if you don't have any energy at all, the most obvious form is when you're about to fall asleep. This, of course, is not an uncommon thing with meditators. And this is, you know, where the body feels heavy and lethargic and weary and the mind is dull and cloudy and sluggish. And when it's strong, we don't even know it's there. We're just, you know, doing this thing or, you know, this thing uh, nodding off. And this being a hindrance is distinct from physical tiredness or mental tiredness. So it's not that there isn't any energy available, it's that we're not accessing it. So there's a way in which there's a, like, choosing not to access it. Choosing maybe is too strong a word, but often this is due to a sense of resistance. Like, we don't actually want to be present for what's there, so there's a type of shutting down, or this discouragement, or this hopelessness or frustration or boredom. So when these things are present, there's a way in which there's kind of like the whole energy just kind of drains out. So that's like the obvious form. That's the most obvious. But there's also a more subtle form, which uh, the Buddha called Atalina Virya. And this is when there's not enough effort a certain amount of complacency. So the simile is like the same was with the quail, holding the quail instead of too tight, now it's too loose and the quail just flies away. So like, okay, yeah, I'm with the object, but not with a lot of energy. And so it just kind of goes like this. The mind kind of drifts away and then maybe comes back a little bit and then drifts away. So this kind of deficiency of effort, maybe I'd say, this like coming back, there isn't a lot of emphasis on coming back to the the object. 
And there's also another type of way in which this shows up. And this is as inertia. So just this way is the just kind of like letting the momentum of practice unfold, but then the momentum runs out. And then we just do whatever our habits are, whatever our patterns are, just show up when the, there's this kind of inertia. Like, And it's not uncommon to like, we'll sit down on the, especially long-time meditators, to sit on the cushion and just do what they've been doing for the past five or ten years and they not really a sense of freshness or brightness or curiosity. Kind of like this inertia, yeah, this is what I do in the morning, I sit. Without a sense of it going somewhere or wanting it to be a support for one's life. And then even a more subtle version of that is uh, what we call sinking mind. This again is not anything that you'll find in any Buddhist teachings, but something that Dharma teachers talk about. And I uh, was so happy when I learned about this because come to find out I used to spend a lot of time doing this unknowingly. It's a way in which there's a, the mind is settled, the body is settled, and it's in this nice, cushy, comfy, cottony, fluffy, dull space. So it feels like, you know, the outside world is a little bit uh, away, but this feels like, uh, like it starts off maybe feeling nice because there's, there isn't, aren't things bothering you, but there's a way in which the energy is always just slowly draining. And there's something about by the end of the sit, kind of feel awful. You feel like, oh, I'm so tired and the world is meaningless and I kind of hate everything. And, you know, there's this, there's a just draining out of the energy. So it starts as being comfy, secluded, but then it doesn't, it ends up feeling kind of awful. And it takes some real effort to get out of this. And this can be a habit. For a lot of people, they just get into this comfy cottony, fluffy, puffy, (laughs) I don't really know how to describe it, place, and stay there, and stay there, and stay there. And they think that this is their practice, this is a good practice, and some way it is, but they don't have a brightness to their mind. There isn't some uplift, or some clarity, or vitality. Instead, maybe that's a way to describe it. You're in this comfy, fluffy place, but the vitality is draining out and you you end up with no vitality and that's not a good feeling. So there's all these different ways in which the hindrances show up. I was just talking about energy levels, you know, to the most obvious, to the most subtle. But then, of course, we want to work with them. Like, well, what do we do with them? And here's something that I think is maybe helpful to consider how we respond to the hindrances depends what kind of practice we're doing and what we are, what our intention is for that meditation period. More specifically, if you're doing mindfulness practice, 
you'll work with them in one way. If you're doing concentration practice, you'll work with them in a different way. You might ask, well, what's the difference between mindfulness and concentration? And I guess I, I can describe this in the, as a, along with the description like how one would work with them in the mindfulness practice. So mindfulness practice is a practice of noticing what's actually happening here in the present moment. And we often do that by starting with being mindful of the breath, but we're mindful of the sensations of breathing, like noticing how does an inhale feel, how does an exhale feel, how do the transitions between inhales and exhales. When I'm doing guided meditations for mindfulness of breathing, I'll include like noticing some of the changing aspects of the breath. And then when the mind settles a little bit, we'll turn to what's compelling. Discomfort in the body, emotional states, lots of thoughts, sounds, whatever it is. So mindfulness of the breath. Something's compelling, we turn over here and we're doing mindfulness, I'll just make this up, pain in the, or discomfort in the knee. When that's no longer compelling, we come back to the breath. Oh, there's the sound, the dog's barking, then we come back to the breath. So that's more mindfulness. And so when things or hindrances come up, we just, that's just one more thing. Here's the breath. Oh, here's the sensation of too much energy. Feel into that. Be with that. And so it's no longer an obstacle to mindfulness. It's the object of mindfulness. And then you're just being mindful. You have to be mindfulness of too much energy, but it, mindfulness is mindfulness. However, with concentration practices, we want to be a little bit more proactive with the hindrances and not just be aware of them, but to apply what we might say are antidotes, like ways, what are things that we can do to work with the energy. And so one way, one thing that we can do is if we feel like there's too much energy, we can shift our practice to start doing body scans, going from the head down to the toes. This gives the mind something a little bit extra to do, and it's a way that rather than trying to keep something you know, in one place, you can, you know, it goes sensations in the head, and shoulders, back, chest, belly, sensations on the seat, etc. So giving something the mind to do is a little bit easier for a restless mind. Something else you might do with concentration, but you wouldn't do with mindfulness, is to extend the exhale just a little bit. Just the the way the human physiology is, extended exhales are calming. It's kind of sometimes where we go, ah, right? This kind of is a habit. But to just intentionally, just very simply extend the exhales a little bit. And that might be a way in which you can work with too much energy. Another way is to just find a way of breathing that feels soothing. And this might mean bringing in a little bit of an imagination. Something that um, I've heard a Dharma teacher say is that maybe as if uh, when the mind is quiet, pretty settled, but there's still some restlessness 
So it's settled enough that you can notice the feeling of breathing in your back. You know, like the our, uh, the muscles between our ribs mo- move a little bit when we breathe, and including the ribs in the back. When the mind is quiet, you can like feel that, and you just might you know imagine like it's maybe like somebody that's like uh, like stroking your back in a way like a loved one. Like when we you know we do this like with kids or people that we love, we stroke their back. Just might notice or like have the breath, have this maybe sensation of like somebody is like soothing, touching your back. And that can be a way also with restlessness, bringing in a little bit of imagination that's still connected to the sensations of breathing. And so we would apply these antidotes just as a way to kind of like help the restlessness settle. And when that restlessness has stopped or settled more, then we can come back to more conventional concentration practices. So that's one way to be with uh, too much uh, energy if you're doing concentration practices. But what if you're doing, um, you have too little energy and you want to be doing concentration practices? It turns out doing body scans is another way to do it. If you're with the breath, to shift to body scans. So body scans work with both too much energy and too little energy. And part of what can be the difference is the rate at which you're kind of like doing the scan can help bring the energy up or bring the energy down. For uh, To bring up the energy, actually longer inhales, just a little bit, you know, like just, I'm not talking about super long ones, but just a tiny bit longer. That kind of like brings up, kind of like energize uh, the system, energize the body and the mind. Or something else that you, we might do if there's just not enough energy, if we're doing concentration practices, is there's a way in which we can open our awareness really wide. Yeah, this is hard to describe if you don't have experience with this, but maybe in the same way that if we're going to do mindfulness of sounds, we kind of like open up and like we're listening to sounds that are in different places, to open up the awareness to be really big. This is something you'll just have to play with. It's hard to describe. But because when we're really tired, have you noticed this? that there's kind of this collapsing, right? And we're just kind of, there's our, just this dark little experience. And it's how often with my body too, like I can't help myself. I, there's this, with the body is leaning forward, but if you want to bring in more energies to bring up the posture and have the awareness be really big. Just something to play around and explore with. Wow. So I'm saying wow because I'm looking at the time. (laughs) There's a lot I can say here. But maybe I want to point to a few things. I talked about how the hindrances can really be, working with them or even being aware of them can really be a uh, support for our life. And part of that is like shifting our relationship to them. One way to shift relationships is talk about how or acknowledge that there it's a wide range. Obvious and subtle. 
And we can work with them uh, with, with mindfulness or with concentration. With mindfulness, what we learn about the hindrances as we're making it a meditation object, we can bring into our daily life. Some of the things I talked about for concentration, we wouldn't necessarily. But there's something also to notice that shows up as a hindrance, which sometimes we don't even consider it as a hindrance in our meditation practice. That no matter what uh, degree of settledness or collectedness we have, let's say that we, we feel pretty good. Like, okay, yeah, it, it feels okay. And then there's this way it says, yeah, but it was better that other time. <laughs> So there's this way in which there's this little negativity that uh, shows up. And I love the way that Rob Barbea, he describes this. this, He calls this this, a a micro-negativity, this habit of the mind. And describes it, he has this simile. It says, as if uh, you were a potter and you're uh, throwing... I don't actually know what the correct words words for this, but there's a potter's wheel, and the wheel's spinning, and you have a lump of clay in the middle, and you want to make something, you know, like a bell or a vase or cut purple or something. So you're working with your hands, and if there's just this little negativity, yeah, I was better before. This is a, this is pretty good, but that's like a little bit of pressure, and then the pressure gets put on the on the this piece of clay and it starts the shape starts to change because there's just this slight pressure so it's really subtle but it really starts to change the experience just like it would change what's being made so is there a way that we can notice that this feeling of yes it was better and then maybe do a little bit of a course correction and lean into any sense of well-being, any sense of contentment, any sense of pleasure, any sense of happiness, and just attune to that. Attune to any sense of okayness. Because also that will shape, but it's less of a pressure and a more of allowing. And so I don't know if this analogy really works so well, but I will say that tuning into any sense of well-being, even if it's not your predominant experience, even if it's just a portion of your experience, it turns out that it's always a way forward to tune into a sense of well-being, okayness, happiness, contentment, is always a way forward in meditation practice. Tuning into what's not okay and kind of awful turns out to be a dead end. We have to discover this for ourselves. I mean, I'm telling you this, right? But it's not until you go down that dead end a hundred quadrillion bazillion times <laughs> that you start to really uh, believe it. But I just want to maybe offer this encouragement 
Sometimes we feel like meditation practice is this dull, dreary thing we're supposed to do. And to be sure, sometimes it is hard. And sometimes we come in contact with a lot of difficulties. Difficulties arise and it's decidedly unpleasant and sometimes awful. So meditation practice has that, those experiences. But even if we could have a sense of, any sense of okayness, like, oh yeah, this really is awful. I wish it weren't like this. But if there's any sense of, but it is like this. Not so, it is like this. And if we can attune to any sense of okayness, that's the way forward. So then, maybe I'll end with this Maybe an encouragement that these hindrances, they have this wide range and there's different ways to work with them and to you know notice the obvious and the subtle. But one way is to not take them personally. They've been described for thousands of years. This is what human beings do. Every human being does. This is what it means to be human, is to be pushing and pulling and too much energy, not enough energy, or be unsure and have vacillation. We tend to make up stories because this is happening, I'm a bad meditator, but because it's happening, it just means you're human. That's all it means. So is there a way that we can shift our relationship to the hindrances? Like, oh, yep, okay, here it is. But the hindrance has this flavor at this time, but this is just what's happening. And can we attune to that? Yep, this is just what's happening, that sentiment, and that'll be part of the way forward. Okay, so... I did a lot of talking there. Sometimes I talk less for these uh, Monday nights, but I appreciate your attention, and I'll end there. Thank you. So we're at the top of the hour, so I won't open it up to questions and answers in general, but if you'd like, I'm more than happy to answer some if you'd like to come up here and talk to me. Otherwise, I wish you... A nice evening and safe travels home. Thank you.